Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Space Junk. We are on our 21st episode. Can you guys believe it? This is our, we are really making progress in our broadcast that is dedicated to showing you and talking about the wonders of the night sky, the hobby of amateur astronomy, the profession of astronomy, and all the discoveries and and wonders therein. And I've really been excited about this podcast. It's really starting to grow. And I'm joined with my co-host, Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescope. You out there, Dustin? Hey, Tony. I guess this is the 21st episode. I guess we were an episode early on the beer drinking episode, huh? Was it 19? Was it 20? It was or am 20. I off by yeah, one? yeah, it was 20. We should have waited. <laughs> I just mean, you know, we should have waited until we were at least 21, right, to start drinking yeah. alcohol on uh, the podcast. That's a good point. Yeah, that's yeah. right. We're a little bit underage on that one, but we'll hopefully, <laughs> hopefully it'll be uh, it'll be forgiven. Yeah. Uh, well, so with that in mind, and with this, we've had so much fun doing this podcast. We've got an announcement to make, right, Dustin? You want to go ahead and go? We do. Yeah, we're going to be in New York. I've gotten so many messages since the last time we were there. Uh, we set up telescopes in Times Square. It was uh, a pretty big deal. You know, we just kind of we did it without permission last time. Uh, got thrown out by the counterterrorism unit. It was a mess. Um, but a lot of people, I mean, a ton of people, got to look through telescopes in Times Square and even see imaging being done right through the light pollution. And we are doing it again. So. April 3rd through April 7th. You can come out and hang out with uh, Tony and myself and several others. We're bringing quite a few people and we will be in Times Square with a lot of equipment. And the city has given us permission this time. So we're not going to get thrown out. You're not going to be putting, you know, yourself or your children at risk coming <laughs> to hang out <laughs> with us. But uh, yeah, it'll be an all night thing. And we'll be there. Uh, they'll be recording for the documentary with Stephen Swancoat. And so you can really come be part of all of it. It's a free event. And uh, yeah, it'll be that Saturday, which is the 6th. But we'll be in New York um, What through, from the 3rd through the 7th, right? That's right. And part of that trip is going to be, we're going to be going to the uh, New England Astronomy Forum too, right? Uh, so Northeastern, we'll yeah. No, I'm sorry, Northeastern. Yeah, yeah, Neef. Neef. And we'll be there as well uh, for one of the days, I believe, right? We will. Yeah, we'll be there that uh, Saturday morning and uh, early afternoon, uh, walking around. A lot of people there. I mean, this this is such a tight-knit uh, group of people in this industry. And so it'll be nice to see everybody and just shake hands. But yeah, we'll be there early in the day and then on to Times Square. Yeah, and I'll be I'll be capturing as much of this as possible on social media. Of course, Dustin will be too. I'll be making videos. I'll be streaming some of it. We're but we are still working out the schedule of what we're going to stream and how, but uh, a lot of it will be on my channel on Deep Astronomy on YouTube, so definitely, you know, stay tuned for that as well as on Dustin, on Dustin's uh, Instagram account. Uh, it's either going to be on OPT Corp or, or Gibson Picks, right? Yeah, it'll be on both. Both. It'll be on both. Okay. So yeah, you'll be able to you'll be able to be with us even though you're not actually with us there physically if you don't if you can't make it. But definitely come down to Times Square, take a look at some awesome telescopes because Dustin has the best toys. He just does. <laughs> <laughs> and so well, that's why you if, pick a career in astronomy, right? So you can play with all the best toys. That's right, which is a great segue. See, we're getting better at this, folks. We're doing a 20-some-odd episodes. We're getting better. <laughs> Segway into our topic today. Our guest today is Dr. Paul Sutter. He is a, an, a professional astronomer as well as a, a science communicator. He does all kinds of things uh, uh, in both realms. He's He runs a podcast, for example. He has a YouTube series that he uh, asks a spaceman. He does space radio which is uh, some of the latest news from across the universe. He also does, he, you, you also, he also co-hosts the weekly space hangout uh, that's on YouTube as well. And he's also involved in lots of other things. He's written books, he's written articles, public speaking, and he's involved in something called Astro Tours, which we're going to talk about here as well on the podcast. So Paul, welcome to our podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. 
Yeah, it's great to talk to you finally. I follow you and seeing you all over the place. I've also seen you with uh, with Skylias on on Twitch. You you show oh, up yeah. on her stream, on her stream quite a bit, don't you? And uh, talk about all kinds of stuff. So tell us a little bit about yourself. You do a lot of things. So give us some background. Yeah, I do a lot of things because I like doing lots of things. I do research in my position at The Ohio State University. I coordinate some outreach efforts, and I also just love talking about all this sciencey stuff. So articles, the book, TV, YouTube, podcast, everything you mentioned, I I just do because I can't get enough of it. Paul, I was going to tell you, you know, I've, I've been a fan of yours for a long time. You know, I actually met Paul through uh, another close friend, Fraser Kane uh, from University Today. And uh, we, you know, started working together on a few projects, actually Astro Tours. And we should go into that uh, real quick. But uh, I just wanted to tell you, you know, there's two things that are very, very important to me in this. And I think one of those is, you know, communicating science in a way that people actually want to understand it, not like forcing it on people, but making it accessible and enjoyable. And that's something I think you're, you're at the top doing. You're doing that so incredibly well, uh, taking complex information and making it something that anyone can understand. And then the other thing would be uh, outreach, which obviously, I mean, we're taking telescopes to Times Square, is is very, very important to us. And that's where Astro Tours comes in. I mean, it's, it's pretty innovative. I don't see it happening a lot of other places. And if you don't mind, go into that. Talk about Astro Tours for just a second and what it is you guys are doing. Yeah, Astro Tours is this, what happens when you take two things that you love and, and make them uh, kiss. I love astronomy and stargazing, and I love to travel. And there's plenty of places around the world that have these gorgeous, gorgeous dark skies and exotic locations. And together with my business partner, Nick DePalma, we started a company, Astro Tours, that does exactly that, of take you to amazing places around the world and tell science-themed stories at those places. Uh, with an especial folk with a special focus on stargazing. So and these are led by me, by Fraser Kane, by Pamela Gay. We have a really fun party in Joshua Tree coming up this June that has a whole bunch of people on board, including yourself. And these are places like going to Iceland to go hunt for Aurora, going to the Atacama Desert of northern Chile for some of the driest skies you've ever seen. Uh, we, I just got back from a trip to Costa Rica where we spent all days exploring the jungles and volcanoes and beaches. And then during the night, we had beautiful dark skies and we had lots of opportunities to just talk about science and soak in that and experience it. It's just a, such a fun way for a small group of people, a couple dozen, two or three dozen people to hang out, have fun, and also learn some science. You know, this uh, this podcast is our baby. We're very, very protective of it, and we want it just to uh, serve the amateur community. And so we, we generally don't uh, – you know, we're, we're really protective of not having a lot of plugs for different businesses and people that come on. But with this one, I think it's a little bit different because it's something I really think people don't know exists, um, at least, you know, I mean, especially since there's such limited availability, so few spots. Uh, why don't you do that? Why don't you break our rules real quick and just kind of tell people how they can get involved? Because it's like you said, I mean, they're usually sold out before a lot of the people, even my friends have messaged me and been like, Hey, uh, you know, I found out about it, but I found out about it a month too late. <laughs> so how do people get uh, yeah. involved that want to come to Costa Rica or want to, you know, go see the Northern Lights? Yeah, thanks so much for the opportunity. You can go to our website, astro.tours. It's that easy, astro.tours, and we have links to all of our upcoming trips. And the very next trip is the All-Stars Party in Joshua Tree National Park, which is outside L.A., it's that's going to be fun. That's going to be between 30 and 60 people. Uh, the registration deadline for that is March 26th. And so you need to register. You don't have to fully pay by March 26th, but you do need to register. And there's going to be myself, Fraser, Kane, Pamela Gay, John Michael Godier, Skylius, and you uh, with telescopes in the desert, staying all day at a gorgeous resort in Palm Springs. And then every night getting bust out to the desert and just having a blast. You made that one so easy on me to say yes to because, you know, it's it's right next door to my observatory. I mean, we're talking a 10-minute drive from 
so from where I'd be anyway. <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. It's it's just and it's really convenient. It's, it's we're we're running shuttles out of LAX to get you out to the resort. It's a four star resort and spa. We've got activities during the day. It's just tons of fun. All right. So yeah, Astro.tours. I'm looking at the website now at the at and you in addition to the one in Joshua Tree, the, there's uh, uh, there's another one with Pamela Gay in August in the Southwest, and then you're you're going to be in Hawaii. It looks like in October. So that's right. So lots of cool things going on there. So wow, that's and so you spend the day just taking the tour uh, tours of the area, uh, looking at things of interest, and then at night you get involved in, in stargazing? Is that how, is that how yeah, a typical Yeah, that's exactly right. So so we we always plan these trips with fun things to do during the day, both for yourself and for your spouse who may or may not be interested in all this stargazing geekiness. They have they can come on this trip and feel like or they can come on any trip and feel like while wow, they're really getting a great adventure, they're getting their money's worth and then they can just go to bed or go to the bars while you uh explore the the night sky. Yeah. Cause you know, that's how, that's how astro people work. That's how all of us work, right? It's like the daytime is just to obsess over what's going to happen when it gets dark, you know? And, and <laughs> I'm laughing setting... because I, I'm thinking of the guest we had early in our podcast. I won't mention his name. I want to let, let the listeners go find that podcast on their own, where he was talking about um, getting involved in building telescopes and designing telescopes and, and being an amateur astronomer and his wife uh, didn't like him spending all that time. So he, he got a new wife. Uh, that, you remember <laughs> yeah. that episode? He said, it, he said it on on the air, yeah. so I don't feel yeah. like you know I'm, I'm, no, I'm no. putting him out. But it was like, yeah, <laughs> if you're if you're going on a star tour with somebody who does like astronomy, yeah, maybe you reference that podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I was laughing because I was thinking about that yep. guy. Well, it's true, man. It's true. Astro people <laughs> are astro people through and through, you know. But that's that's why they're the best. Yeah, it's definitely one. I think this is one worth breaking the rules for because it's really cool idea. And the world needs more astronomy outreach. And uh, this is one of the most enjoyable ways I think that people could do it. So uh, yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for setting that up for one and for going into that a little bit and making it available to people. So let's, um, let's continue on though. We've got a lot to talk about today and, um, we're kind of talking about how you have, if not the, the worst job in the universe, definitely one of the hardest, right? So let's talk about what it means to be a professional astrophysicist. Yeah. How'd you get yeah. started? Uh, I got started in college, actually. I'd always grown up reading books about astronomy and space and dinosaurs and life and all sorts of awesome stuff. Uh, but originally, I went into college as a computer science major, and it was in my third year. I took an astronomy class because I had always liked astronomy. And really, I just got hooked right away and talked to the professor. And less than a week later, I switched majors to physics uh, because my university didn't have an astronomy program and got a bachelor's in physics, got on to do a PhD in physics, do a couple short-term research positions, one in Paris, one in Italy, uh, and then before having this position at The Ohio State University. So it was really, I was around uh, 2021 when I, I jumped into this. What college were you at when that happened? I did my undergrad at California Polytechnic State University in San Luis Obispo, California, and then my PhD at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Ah, University of Illinois. I spent three years there working with the nice. Dark Energy Survey. At Fighting UCS. Illini. Yes. My university was also like yours uh, in, in San, Ob San Obispo, where it did not have an astronomy degree while I started. So I also did physics. And I, I started with a physics undergraduate. And then later, while I was there, they added an astronomy undergraduate. And I, I often, and my son is now going, to, this was at University of Colorado, and I my son is now going to the University of Colorado where he is also studying physics. And I advised him to take physics over astronomy. And I'd like to get your uh, thoughts on this in a minute. I advised him to take physics over astronomy because it is the, I think it's the better degree. It's more complete in terms of the kind of courses that you have to take. It's certainly harder. And I felt like it gave you a better foundation for going on to say astrophysics in grad school than the astronomy undergraduate degree. Would you agree with that? Honestly, it depends on the particular programs in universities. Some programs 
the astronomy major is going to end up taking a lot of physics classes anyway. Some not so much. Some they look very different. Some they're very similar. Some you learn a very broad set of overlapping skills because physics doesn't stop on the earth. It does go out throughout the universe. So you still need to understand a lot of physics to be an astronomer and some don't. So it's, it's a very, very much a case by case basis when it comes to job employment prospects in the industry, you're getting a job after a bachelor's uh, physics and astronomy are about on par with each other. Okay. Well, my I, I looked at the classes side by side, and I thought about changing to an astronomy undergrad only to just, to say to myself, nope, this is a better degree. This one had, I felt, more more complete um, coursework that I would needed to take, especially if I wanted to go on to grad school. And my son, while he's not interested in astronomy per se, he said, you know, I told him, I said, son, if you get a degree in physics, there, that will apply to so many other job areas, when they see that on your resume, you will be able to get jobs uh, because it shows that you're capable, first of all, of doing hard things. Second of all, uh, you're a good problem solver and you and you can uh, sort of be more analytical in how you approach things. And so most jobs would look at that degree and find that as a fav favorable thing, even if they're not related to astronomy or science. What do you think of that? Do you, do you agree with that statement? The you know we actually have statistics to back this up. The unemployment rate for physics and astronomy majors is basically zero. <laughs> basically zero percent. If if you have a bachelor's in physics or astronomy and you want a job, you've got one. Yeah. The only difference between my son, I I, I love living vicariously through him because I get to see who he has for what class and all of this because we went to the same program. They've changed a lot since I went, however. But the uh the 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 thing that he always tells me is. Well, dad, you know, because I told him, I said, you don't want to take the first semester of physics, freshman physics, along with the first semester of calculus at the same time, because there's things that I wish I had known from from Calc 1 that I didn't know yet in physics one when I was taking them. So I would I would stagger those. Take physics one after you take Calc 1. And he's like, yeah, dad, I thought about doing that. But, you know, uh, Calc 1 is so easy for me. I just don't really have a problem with that because I, I have math blocks. I, I could not do math and i'm like oh man if you are i was talking on the phone at the time i said boy i would i would smack you if i could because <laughs> i'm so jealous that he could do all that math uh so easily and it came very difficult for me were you always good at math i wouldn't say i was good at math I, math was something i had to work really really hard at to be proficient uh, but i was good at computer programming and almost all scientists nowadays are basically amateur computer programmers. And so that skill really paid dividends. Boy, you're speaking my language there. That's true. One of the reasons that got me over the math blocks, one of the things that allowed me to do math was I spent many years teaching myself computer programming. And whatever it is that, that, that your brain is doing when it writes computer code is exactly the same kind of thing it needs to do for math. And so I was able to transition from one skill to another after I learned computer programming. So it really helped me a lot as well, overcoming math. So let's talk about the people, the people like me then, right? Because I don't like either. I don't, don't like do any, I don't no, like it either. No, that much. Not at all. I mean, I've done a lot of math, you know, through through the different physics and chemistry classes. And I just, um, you know, and then even obviously you have to you know, go through calc and, and all the others. But it was um, it was always something for me that when I was going into a math class, I just thought, oh, God, I'm ready for this to be over. Absolutely hated it. And then computer programming, I never had any interest in either. So what about for people that that don't that just genuinely don't like that, but that do have a drive or a passion for astronomy? I mean, and have math blocks, you mean? Yeah, exactly. Uh, first, I'm going to say there's no such thing as a math block. It's a skill that you you have to apply towards like any other skill and you might have some natural talent. You might not, you might reach a certain level of proficiency. You might not. Uh, but math does play a major role in physics and astronomy. Mathematics is the language of the universe as we understand it, but there's a lot of other skills that need to be applied to make modern astronomy happen. And we shouldn't ignore those skills or discount them. But still, if you're not interested in pursuing a degree in physics or astronomy for whatever reason, but you still love astronomy, well, 
there are tons of opportunities to enjoy the night sky. You may not be publishing research, but you can still partake in astronomy, everything from citizen science projects to outreach events to amateur astronomy clubs and events. There are like any passion, there are many, many ways to satisfy that passion in your life. I was just going to disagree on the statement about math blocks, and I'll tell you why. The the <laughs> the because you hate it. <laughs> no, I did. Well, I just so I grew up unlike Paul. I I've always known since I was like a child what I wanted to do, and that was to go into. First, I wanted to be an astronaut. Then, when I found out what you had to do to be an Apollo astronaut, I changed that to going into studying astronomy, and. I've always wanted to do that. I went through high school wanting to do that. But my grades were absolutely terrible in math. I could not do math to save my life. I couldn't, I mean, just my my GPA was like two point something in high school. And it wasn't from lack of trying. I would study for hours and hours and hours on trying to do math and I couldn't do it. I went so far as to enlist a friend of a family who was a chemical engineer at North Carolina State University, North Carolina, University of North Carolina, and head of the department, really great, really smart guy. And he promised, and he offered to tutor me in algebra and he did it for six months. And finally he said, Tony, I don't, I don't know. I think there's just some people that just can't do this. And maybe you're one of them. <laughs> and he, you know, he, he finally just gave up on my ability to do it. And I became very despondent after that. I was, I was about 20. And I was like, what do you do when the one thing you want to do in your life more than anything else, which is study science and go into astronomy, you can't do, you don't have the skill set for it. And at the, about that time, the movie Amadeus came out about Mozart and Salieri. And I, I wrongly identified that Salieri didn't have any you know, skills, that he was actually a brilliant composer. But he was, he was looking at Mozart the way I was looking at everybody who could do math. I wanted that, but I didn't feel like I had the skills. So what do you do? What do you do? And it wasn't, I got there obliquely, like I said, by teaching myself computer programming, because that I could do. And whatever was going on was re rewiring my brain in a point where sooner and sooner or later I could do math. And now I was able to get through differential equations in, in my undergraduate physics degree. So it got there, but it took me decades. Now, maybe by maybe math blocks isn't the right term. But to me, it was a block. It was something that I could not get past without banging my head literally against the wall uh, trying to get through it. So that's why I said that the way I did. It's like I, I had to work over decades to get there. But maybe you're saying that that's not necessary. I did eventually get there. So maybe that's your point, right? <laughs> <laughs> you can eventually get there and you mathematics isn't necessarily the number one skill that you need to always to be a professional astronomer or to achieve an astronomy or physics degree. It's certainly an important part, but there's lots of other skills that you can lean on and highlight. Let's talk about that for a second then, because what, what is it? I mean, before I went to grad school, I had a certain idea of what it was going to be like, what astronomy was going to be like. And honestly, I think that's probably what most people think. If you're thinking about people that, that aren't in the academia, right? They're just thinking about astronomy and astronomers and what that job might be like, I'd imagine that it's probably along the lines of what I was thinking, which is you're an astronomer, you're in your backyard or at an observatory with a telescope looking at the sky and making observations. And it's not like that at all, is it? Most astronomy nowadays is done with giant observatories that are mostly observatories. Uh, automated. There are support staff that will be on site to make sure things don't break all the time. But usually astronomy nowadays is done remotely, either the because the major observatory might be in a mountaintop in Chile or a mountaintop in Hawaii or a mountaintop somewhere else. We really like mountains or it might be in space altogether. And you're definitely not going to visit like the Hubble to start, you know, slewing it around and pointing <laughs> it at different objects. Right. <laughs> Looking through the eyepiece. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's about it's about collecting data and then from the raw data, understanding the nature of the data, trying to draw inferences, trying to figure out what Mother Nature is trying to teach us. It's in almost all of it is done 
on some form on the computer from taking the raw data, processing it, running it through various analysis programs, generating plots, doing statistical analyses. And the good chunk of your time as an astronomer, when you're not collecting data or managing observation runs, is done doing the analysis. It's debating and sitting, figuring out what what all this means and what what are we supposed to learn from it, mm-hmm. and putting all the pieces together and writing the paper and working with your collaborators and writing a thousand and a half emails to coordinate everything. That's more of the day to day than sitting behind the eyepiece. Right. Yeah. It's in that, you know, that's kind of the first realization I had was at a star party. There were several astronomers there and um, it was the amateurs kind of pointing out the different constellations to the astronomers that are up in the night sky because with their job, they weren't required to know, hey, that's Cassiopeia or, you know, this is this star or or whatever. It was more, you know, they knew the orbital mechanics. They knew the different, um, you know, they knew the physics. They knew the pieces. They knew how to manage the data that was coming in um, and, and, you know, ascertain something from that data. But learning the night sky just visually was not important for the job they had. Oh, I know oh, many. Yeah. I know many of professional astronomers couldn't find uh, many constellations if you asked them to. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, why would they? You know, it's yeah. um, unless it's just the hobby part of it for them. It's really not important for the job, and, and I guess that's is that across. That's really across all professional astronomy, right? There's really no reason to have to go outside and say, "Hey, I can tell you every star in the night sky." Right. It's uh, stargazing, right. uh, especially from your backyard is a hobby almost distinct from professional astronomy. And some professional astronomers enjoy stargazing and some don't. One of the things I noticed, you made a comment earlier about how most professional astronomers are sort of amateur code writers or computer scientists or or computer programmers. One of the things I've noticed, in in addition to the ability to take observations and handle data, uh, there seems to be two major classes of astronomers. There's the ones who can work with the data directly, whether it's downloading data or working with an archive like uh, the space, the Hubble Space Telescope archive or, or some other large data repository. And then there are the ones who write models that try to say what all of these observations mean. And uh, there seem that there doesn't seem to be a lot of overlap, although they do need they do communicate enough to get their models applied to data and vice versa. Would you agree with that categorization that there's there's maybe there's the ones that can deal with the data and there's the observational astronomers and then there's the ones who can deal with that do the modeling? Right. Like anything else in the world, it's not quite binary. It's a spectrum. Of course not. And, yeah, I know. But and, I mean yeah. broadly. <laughs> yeah. And there are definitely astronomers who specialize in data collection and instrument design and systematic error control and, and statistics and all that. And then there are others that are lean, like myself, like an astrophysicist who either do pure theory work or try to connect with observations or try to interpret data. And there's this whole swath in between. And even a single astronomer might publish one paper that's just pure data and observations and say, hey, look at this cool thing and here are the features that we're going to note. And then next paper might be, well, here's this theoretical model that we're trying to uh, apply to this very strange situation and gain some insight to the physics, et cetera, et cetera. So people, individuals will float over the course of their careers and any one department will have a mixture of specialties like that. They'll have a mixture of specialties, but do, is it rare to find the person that can do, that can bridge that gap? It seems to me so time-consuming and difficult to be able to handle and calibrate data and make it servable and searchable and and so that you can ask science questions from that data that I don't I don't know that 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 being able to also then devise write code a model that describe that data is something a person can even realistically do in their career or am I just wrong there it seems like specializations required these days to get astronomy done. Specialization is always required and it always comes down to the individual. There are definitely some astronomers that don't 
deal with modeling, don't deal with theoretical analysis or statistics. Um, and then, but I would say the majority of astronomers at least dabble in model development and statistics and analysis. Okay. And so writing a model that describes, let's say, I don't know, galaxy rotations, and you, you say, well, galaxies with certain kinds of mass should rotate like this. And then you go and you look at the Hubble Space Telescope or any kind of uh, telescope, really, and you start making observations and you notice, well, wait a minute, the galaxies aren't rotating like your model says. What we see is this one. And then the modeler has to go back and go, hmm, what did I what did I do wrong or what did I or, you know, what do I need to adjust to make the models fit the observations? Would you characterize that as a decent way that science is done nowadays with with respect to astronomy? In some ways, yes. It's very, very fluid and it's very, very flexible. It's sometimes there's well-established theories that have go back decades or centuries and we're trying to probe at the edges and look for new ways to test or break the model. In some ways, we're just going after raw observations to see if nature surprises us. In some cases, it's a dialogue. It's a collaboration between theorists and observers. Uh, and, and usually it's one of each happening all the time in parallel. Getting so getting back to what I was going to say about the computer programming, when I was at the institute, when I was working at in, in Maryland, and the uh, I met a lot of astronomers working with Hubble data. One of the things, and I'd spent my career as a computer programmer, as a I call myself an astronomical programmer, not so much as a statement on how good I was, as a statement of the kind of programs I wrote. They were for astronomy, data processing, and things like that. So I spent most of my career writing code for working with data or working with uh, models and integrate those data. And one thing I've noticed, and, and, and I'd like to get your thoughts on this, is that many astronomers are very wedded to a specific either programming language or even a specific platform. And I wonder, you know, if, is the, if that's just a sign of the, if that's a generational thing, because I think something that could really make astronomy progress faster is if people just wrote code that was more uh, following best practices, that would be more interchangeable. Because if you write a paper based on some observations from Hubble and publish it, but those but that, that research is running on code that, say, is written in Fortran and requires a G Fortran compiler, you can't uh, share that with someone else to reproduce your results. So do you see that as being a, any sort of a problem at all or not really. It definitely can be a problem, but it's not, it's mere existence doesn't make it a problem. A, a lot of, there's a lot of legacy old codes out there. There's a lot of old data sets that still need to be mined and worked on. And, you know, you need the right tools to access those data sets. And if those data sets were generated, you know, in the 80s, when it comes to the Hubble Space Telescope, you don't really have a lot of choices. And when it comes to, older codes and if it works if it's gone through the ringer if it's been around for a few years or even a decade if it's not wrong you're probably going to break something by trying to fix it and update it into a new language mm -hmm. and i wasn't joking when i said the astronomers are basically amateur coders. Yeah. <laughs> we don't you know it's not part of traditional training as an astronomer or physicist to to learn best practices in software development it's about okay we gotta get this thing we have a budget of zero dollars let's let's crank it out but i think that's a growth field in astronomy that's what i've been pushing for if you have the computer skills to understand what it takes to write good maintainable reproducible code you have that skill set and you're interested in science and handling data, then you are badly needed in the field of astronomy because those astronomers could take, learn from you, uh, or you could write code in a way that is more open sourced or, or easily shareable. Um, AstroPy is a good example that I'm, I think of is that is one effort that people have come up with, but that was started by a bunch of very computer science oriented, uh, what do you call them, RIAs or, or science, they, they're working in science to write computer code. And I think that could really help advance astronomy so much faster if, if, if that kind of position existed uh, these days. Someone who knew the best practices for writing code 
as well as uh, the astronomy as well, because that doesn't exist very much. No, it doesn't exist. And it doesn't exist because the money's tight and we need to write papers and get grants. <laughs> and so fast but dirty is always preferable. I know. And that and that comes at the expense of, well, I would like to do what this paper suggesting, but to do this, I've got to get his code and I can't get it to run or I don't own IDL or whatever it is. And so you can't do it. And so I just wonder how much that hurts. It probably hurts a lot. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, let's go back to the beginning. And I just want to ask you about advice. Do you have, let's say there are people listening to this podcast, some, some high school kids who are, they're, they're good in physics or they love, they love science. They love astronomy. They're good at math. They're thinking maybe I would like to be an astronomer, but I don't know what it takes. What advice would you give young people who are thinking about going into this career? Uh, my my advice is always the same for any young person thinking about any career, which is if you're in high school, be a good high school student and do your best to get into a, as good a college as you can get and have to spend as little money as possible in that college. Then when you're in college, be a really good college student. Learn the things, start growing. Towards the end of college, you start doing internships, you you. And then if you want to pursue an academic career, then you jump into grad school, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, it's about focusing on where you are now and what is the present rather than trying to plan ahead for 10 years down the road, which is, which is impossible. You know, when we, um, when we started talking about this podcast and we knew that you were coming on, um, you know, Ian here, the marketing director is, uh, he's educated in physics as well. And, uh, he was like, you know, we've got an astronomer coming on. Why don't we talk about the astronomy path? And he's like, here's a good title, Astrophysics, the worst job in the universe. Joking. And his his point was, you know, you get into this because you're a glutton for punishment. You know, it's like you have to truly love it because everything you do is going to be difficult. Everything is challenging. And every single time you make a new discovery, what it, does, what it does is open a box of a thousand new questions. So you take one step forward and it's a, you know, a thousand steps back because then you realize how little you know. But he's like, astronomers, him, himself included, he said, feed on that. They feed on the challenge and they feed on, you know, how much there is to still learn. And how new it is and, and how, you know, that, that challenge is the drive. Uh, what do you think about that? Oh, yeah. If you have a bachelor's in astronomy or physics, the most irresponsible financial decision you can make is to go into academia and pursue a research career. And it's not a nine to five. It's not 40 hours a week. It's not regular hours. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of pain. But it's also really rewarding and fun. And so the people who are in it, who stick in it, are, are doing it because it's really fun to be right out there at the frontiers of knowledge and the edge of, of human wisdom and pushing on those boundaries and teasing and pulling little thoughts and threads out of nature and adding it to the sum of the things we know. It's, out, it's life in the frontier and life in the frontier is never as comfortable as life in the city. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. And I think that's probably what, you know, amateur astronomers, actually, I know it is, is what amateur astronomers feed on too. the idea that every night when you're getting that telescope out, you're looking at things that truly are not fully understood. And there's a very real challenge there. And it's facing that challenge head on that I think gets people so excited. The amount of information that astronomers can get out of the observations they get is is truly astonishing to me. I mean, starting with Edwin Hubble and and noticing these red shifts. I mean, just by looking at at, at the spectra of these of these uh, galaxies was you know unbelievable. I mean, the, the and it's always been true in astronomy that you have just a tiny tiny bit of information and you can learn so much from it. Like uh, with exoplanets, a tiny dip in the star's brightness can tell you first of all that there's a planet there, and they can also tell you that. You know, what is what, how how long it takes to go around its star and how big it is, and so all of these things you get just tiny amounts, and this is from a dip in brightness that's like one billionth of the amount of the total light from that star. So astronomers are really good at coaxing out secrets from the universe, wouldn't you say? Uh, that's our job is to stare and collect 
and do our best to understand. <laughs> when I when I was at HAO, one of the one of the, uh, the they look at the sun. All they they had solar observatories, and he was like, "We stare at the sun, so you don't have to." <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah. When when the first line of your career, your description is, "My job is to stare." You know, I think that's that's awesome, and that's perfect for astronomy. It really is. Yeah. Right. Well, what are you most excited about now with, with respect to the, I've always said we've lived in, I don't always say this. I mean, I should say, I don't, not the only one that says this. Lots of people say it, that we live in the golden age of astronomy, uh, where we are finding things out at a rate that's, that's just astounding. Uh, what are you most excited about now as far as the current state of astronomy? Oh, there's so many exciting <laughs> I things. I know. There is, Yeah. Uh, there's a whole universe out there. So the hunt for exoplanets and uh, Earth and Earth-like planet out there and the potential for life living on another planet, our hunt for that, our hunt for the first stars and galaxies to appear in the universe, the the searches in for gravitational waves, which has opened up a brand new window in astronomy, the high energy particle astrophysics, where we're using neutrinos crashing in from distant supernova to understand fundamental physics. I mean, there's just so many exciting areas. Oh, it, that's a whole other episode. Well, this is the this is a segment of our podcast that I like to call "Put the Astronomer on the Spot." So I'm going to ask you a question. <laughs> you didn't know we had that segment, did you, Dustin? <laughs> Learning right now. Yeah, it's a brand new one. I just sounds like fun. Oh yes. yeah, I'm gonna. I, so I would like your opinion on this. Do you think, first of all, that there's life in the universe? And I'm, yeah, Tony and I yes, disagree. Yes, by life, I mean just life. There's life in the universe because uh, we are, by definition, a part of the universe. All right. Besides us. <laughs> <laughs> Most likely, yes. Most Ooh, likely, that's yes. That's got to hurt, Tony. Yeah. That has got to hurt. Tony and I well, disagree No, no, because I'm, I'm, with, I'm with him on this because I just said life. Now, oh, come on. Don't now, don't change sides now. I'm man. not changing well. sides. I, I, I have always said that as far as no. simple life goes, I'm on board with that. I think we'll probably find something. Okay, what about intelligent life? And by intelligent life, I mean something who has managed to build a technological civilization of some kind. Do you think that's sure. common? Uh, right, let me know. I, I changed the question, didn't I? I asked you first if they first of all, does it exist does in the it universe? Exist? Yeah, yes. does it exist? Yes, I, I was being unfair. Does it exist? Sure. Well, that Jeez, doesn't sound Tony. very. You're just like saying two, stuff. <laughs> two to zero. You just two like to sure, zero. Yeah. sure, whatever, man. Greater than uh, zero, less than infinity. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh boy! So, oh, come on, it's there, man. It's the the, the universe is just too big. Well, it's was, just too big for it to not be. Is it okay then if it's greater than zero and less than infinity? Do we do you think that it's common? Could you please define the word common? All right, let's. Uh, I would say, well, that's a good. I, I should be more more careful, shouldn't I? Let's say that there are a com a commonality would be, say, ten percent of our galaxy might have an, a a a either life or um, a technological civilization. I think that's pretty fair. Probably not ten percent. No, not that high. So that would be a common. That would be. You gotta go. Go go lower. Okay. Why? Why do I have to go lower? If ten percent, so the Milky Way galaxy has three around three hundred billion stars. So if ten percent of stars hosted life, that is thirty billion homes for life. Which means in our neighborhood where we can, there's around a million stars within, say, a thousand light years of the Earth, then there's already aliens like right there and we should have seen them by now. Right. Okay. Okay. That's, that's fair. But still, I think that, you know, Tony, you just admitted, you know, you're horrible at math. So let's stick with Paul here. <laughs> <Okay>. Right. <laughs> fair fair enough. Just, I, I will yeah. defer my. The math, the math, any math questions to Paul, by all means. But, but let's, I mean, my question, Paul, is the universe. I mean, I just took, I posted a photo last week. It, it's got to have 150 galaxies that are obvious in the image of a space that's like looking through a straw, right? At the night sky. And when we're looking at these, like you just said, the Milky Way alone has 300 billion stars in it. And this one image 
has at least 150 galaxies like that in this one image, and it's all over the night sky. I mean, you know, with what we know, there's what billions of galaxies or more. Right. Yeah, there's somewhere between 500 billion and 2 trillion galaxies in the observable universe. Five. I mean, okay, let's let's start at the bottom end. 500 billion independent areas of 300 billion stars. I mean, is it not mathematically impossible that we're the only life? It's not necessarily mathematically impossible. It's very unlikely. I find that I find these statistical arguments unconvincing because that's not that? that's not the the way you handle the problem. If if you say, well, you know, we've got three hundred billion or however many trillions of galaxies and stars out there, well, surely then it follows that that life is inevitable. It does not. What 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 follows is what happens to life itself when it is starting with some simple basic chemistry whatever it is primordial ooze and it's has all the ingredients for life but isn't alive is that step is going from non-life to life trivial well i've talked to many biologists who say it's not that it's not like a spark you can't just say well you you don't suddenly go from not having life to having it it's a progression of increasingly complicated chemistry that eventually gets you to things that uh, have many of the qualities that we attribute to life. So that's where I changed my stance. I think, okay, that <laughs> is probably possible much more so than I thought before. If it's not a spark, okay. It's, if it's this sort of spectrum of chemistry that gets us from simpler chemistry to more complicated organic chemistry and finally to life itself, okay, maybe that's not so hard. And over a trillion stars, okay, sure. It's going to happen probably a lot more than I used to think. But then we have things like great filters and the misuse of the Drake equation and all these other things that lead us to think, well, there should be this many civilizations out there if that's true. And that there are just too many things. The universe is a hostile place to living and to living creatures. And it is especially hostile to technological civilizations with that develop technology. So I think that is incredibly rare and it is perfectly reasonable to think that our galaxy especially we're it. You we're, we're the only ones here uh technologically I, speaking. I tell you what, I right now I'm going to ask a spaceman. I am going to <laughs> That's ask why we have him, isn't it? Let's that ask a physicist. Do you think and this is a very important question, but do you think that Tony still qualifies for intelligent life? Ooh, in the universe. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I, oh, look. that is a good question. Unfortunately, I'm not a neurologist or biologist, so I'm not exactly more like a psychiatrist to, to measure, to yeah. measure intelligence. <laughs> right. uh, we can do, uh, you know, has, has Tony passed the mirror test? <laughs> can he even pass the Turing test? I don't even yeah. know that. <laughs> Have you passed the mirror test? <laughs> yeah. No, I think uh, it's a sound argument. It makes sense. I just don't like it because I want there to be life, and I, I'm going to stick with these statistical argument i just think it's too big you know even if it is a 0.0001 chance of it happening i mean that means it's all over the universe still it's everywhere if that's the case you know and i just think it's it's too big not to be are you are you very excited about some of the upcoming space telescopes that we've got on on tap we've got james webb's coming up we've got after that hopefully if if congress will get it we'll have w first um we've got some cool things up there now like gaia and tess um are you excited about any of the future uh, spacecraft? Right, I have a hard time. I have a hard time getting excited for James Webb because I have a feeling it will never launch. But that's just my own cynical, pessimistic. Oh, really? Attitude. You think it won't launch? I think every time its name is mentioned, NASA adds a day. Mm. <laughs> and so now we're we're in, now we're in somewhere in like twenty one fifty seven before launch. Oh my God! Yeah, yeah. I, I try really hard to be um, optimistic about JWST. I really do. I want it more than when I was working with the Hubble guys and we were switched, we were transitioning over to JWST. Everybody was psyched, but then I left the institute and started just reading all this other stuff and being a part of it. And now with this cost plus contract that that Northrop has, it's just like I maybe you're right. I don't know. I don't like Dustin's life in the universe answer. I don't mm -hmm. like yours because I would really very much like that to launch. But you're right. It's it faces a lot of hurdles. And I don't know what that means for space astronomy. I really don't. It could be very bad. What do you think about these you know, we're launching a uh, CubeSat 
uh, we partnered with SpaceFab to launch a CubeSat space telescope uh, in 2020. And so this is going to be one that's controlled by the general public. Anyone can log in and take control of this space telescope. Obviously, you get much greater resolutions, um, you know, being in space out above the atmosphere. And, you know, they're going to have complete control over this thing. What do you think that that idea means for science? Because those can go up relatively cheaply. And I mean, universities, uh, even just, you know, people that love um, just love astronomy can put up their own space telescopes with that idea. I mean, what do you think that means for science? Oh yeah, this is huge. And it's part of this democratization of space. If you can make access to space cheaper, then everything becomes cheaper when it involves space, including academic research and, you know, putting payloads up in space with interesting experiments or telescopes, mini telescopes, mini experiments, lots of different ideas if you can cut down the price, then this enables, it unlocks a lot of potential science that is simply inaccessible to us because of the cost. That's, you know, that's the reason we got behind it here when we we found out that was the case, that it was happening for the first time. It's because it just seems to me that that's the path to exponential growth in science for, you know, space science is giving everyone access to it in a way that's affordable. It's just like you don't have a handful of people now that are trying to choose, well, what are we going to shoot? Where, Which data are we going to collect? It's just get whatever you want. Look anywhere you want. The whole neighborhood is open to you now, you know? And so getting behind that felt like, all right, this this is important. This needs to exist. And when it does, I mean, shit, you'd, you'd have access to your own, you know? It'd just be like, all right, Paul's going to take control of the telescope for the next month. And whatever it is that's exciting to him is what we're going to learn about now. And you can do that with literally anyone in the world. Yeah, for sure. I want to live in that world. (laughs) Well, we just need to launch a ton of these things then. Oh, yeah, there's that. Well, I'm very interested in um, uh, your thoughts on something that I've been reading about recently about this. um, And this might be – this is an area where more observations – uh, could definitely come in handy and help settle this issue about the I've been reading le- recently about these um, uh, the expansion rate of the universe is characterized by this number called the Hubble H uh, naught the Hubble constant and it is the rate it measures the rate at which the universe is expanding per unit uh, area I guess or per unit per unit length and the different people are getting different answers. There are several ways of measuring this. One of them is by looking through a telescope and looking at uh, what are called standard candles. And another way is by using the cosmic microwave background radiation. And the two camps of these astronomers uh, have come up with numbers for the Hubble constant, but they are different. And what's strange here is that they know them well enough that their error bars don't overlap. Um, Do you think that the advent of this new, there's a third kind of way to measure this with using something called standard sirens, uh, using gravitational waves and neutron star collisions. Do you think that would help settle this conundrum or is it really a conundrum at all? And we're just maybe not observing properly. What are your thoughts on that? Right. It is definitely a conundrum, but whether the resolution is in one or both sets of observations are wrong in a way that we don't currently understand, or there is some benign, mundane explanation that fits within the current cosmological model, or whether it requires new cosmology, new physics to resolve, that is that is still up in the air. We don't have enough data. And the ways to tackle this are to dig back into the current analyses and update them, refine them, do more of them to see what might be going wrong, and to add in other ways of measuring this very important number. And standard sirens might be the way. It is It is a very promising candidate for doing Hubble constant measurements. That said, we don't exactly have a lot of standard sirens because we don't have a lot of gravitational Just the one, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so we might need a dozen of them or two dozen, which we might get in the next 10 years or so. But even if that's the case, uh, when it comes to things like the Hubble constant, Going from the raw data to a conclusion about the Hubble constant involves a lot of very, very tricky statistical analyses. And there's a lot of gotchas, there's a lot of shadows, there's a lot of demons that will haunt you in your analysis. 
And standard sirens might sound promising, and they might be, but until we actually have a couple dozen sirens under our belt and we can start working with them, we can see, you know, are the statistics as good enough as advertised on the package yeah but the, got, the gotchas are, are they're they're built into the air bars aren't they if you know of your gotcha then it's built in the air bars but if you don't know about your gotcha it's not built into the air the, what bars. is it the unknown 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 exactly it's known <laughs> known unknowns and unknown right. unknowns. that's exactly it okay all right well wouldn't it suck if it turns out there's something about the universe we just don't get. Wouldn't that be a bit of a crisis? I mean, that would seem to me like because there the numbers should be what they are according to these two camps, and they're not. Uh, I mean, they don't match. So wouldn't it be? Wouldn't it suck if something didn't just? We there was just some missing piece we just didn't see. No, maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe. No, it, it, I mean, who knows? Who knows? It's uh, welcome, welcome to astronomy. You don't know the answer until you actually get it. Okay. Well, that's that's why Ian called it the worst job in the universe, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's only challenges. I might it's, think of a couple worse. Yeah, it's only challenges from here. One of the best things I can think of for uh, you know a job like yours is that you get to you get to work as a consultant for like you did Star Trek, right? Were you a science yeah, consultant was, for Star Trek? I was a consultant for the second season of Star Trek Discovery, a bunch of fun conversations with one of the writers on a couple episodes. I don't know if they took any of my suggestions, but it was still a fun, really fun chat. And so you don't you don't watch it afterwards looking for the things that you uh, mentioned should happen? Uh, no, I, I just don't. So tell me, <laughs> if they use the word neutrino, then uh, they listen to me. Oh, okay. <laughs> Right. <laughs> well, talk a little bit, but with a few minutes we have left, let's talk a little bit about your outreach efforts because you are a rock star out there. You are doing all kinds of really great, uh, really great things. Um, are you finding that science outreach the, the, of the kind that you're doing, say on YouTube and your space radio and all of this stuff, do you find that you're speaking to the same group of people all the time or are, are you, is it, are you getting out of the bubble, if you know what I mean? Are you able to reach a lot of people? Yeah. What I find is it is easy to speak to the same people or same kind of people with every event. I know who's going to buy my book by default. I know who's listening to my podcast, watching my YouTube videos, who will show up to an event. And I really try to push myself to speak to new audiences. And especially to do that, I work a lot with artists and especially dancers to create new productions. In fact, I'm in New York right now working with a dance company here, Siren Modern Dance, on a performance, a narrated and danced performance based on the study of time. And we're taking this out on the road. We're taking it to a theater near your performing arts center near you. And the crowd that shows up for a dance performance is definitely not my typical podcast audience. And I love it. That is so, so great. Do you have any initial, have you done yeah. any shows yet? We've done some studio showing, some in-progress showings here in New York. And uh, we're actually going to be, I don't know when this podcast will publish, but. Probably next week. Uh Oh, next week. So last week we were in D.C. at the AAAS and then again at the National Academy of Sciences for our first showing of the full completed work. Oh, great. And I would love to know how that's received and to get some to hear some of the feedback, because you're right, that that is a brilliant idea of getting out of the bubble. I struggle with that all the time, and I would love to know. Uh, you know, what are some things that we can do to get out and speak to people who ordinarily wouldn't hear this kind of thing? And I think that's a great approach. Wow. Well, good luck with that. I hope, I hope the tour, and you're going to go on tour throughout the country or just to certain places. Uh, yeah. Anywhere that will pick us up and can pay and feed us. Oh, is that how it works? Uh, you, it, you, you put yourself out there. That's how it works. So there's, so there's a mixture of funding sources that can pay for some. And then uh, sometimes performing arts center hosts, the performers themselves. It's all a very messily complicated business that I have absolutely no part of. I'm just the hired scientist uh, who talks on stage about time. So it, it's out there. Don't worry. Don't worry. Okay. So if I go, so, so I, you can check out uh siren modern dance. Uh, you can look them up on Google. Ah, cool. And okay. you'll get, you'll get their page. Great. And they are siren dance on Instagram as well. I'm looking at it now. That is correct. Siren dance. And you can see some pictures of me with dancers as we're going through rehearsals. Are you dancing as well? Or are you, uh, are you the narrator or what's your role? 
so I am the narrator. Uh, I am on stage. I'm interacting with the dancers. I don't actually dance, but I do move around. Uh, the dancers pick me up at one point. I, work, <laughs> I pick up some of the dancers. Like we do some very, very cool things in the narration. Wow. That sounds amazing. I hope it, so I need to get Orlando. You need to come down to Orlando and I, I, I live near there or Daytona at least. And, uh, so I can come see. <laughs> I would love to see that. That sounds awesome. All right. Well, uh, Dustin, there's anything else we want to add? We're kind of out of time, I think. No, no, this has been fun. Yeah, this is, I never would have guessed dance was the direction. I know. But, uh, I'm, may... I'm dying to hear how that works out. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, it's it's fun. It's fun. It All looks right. like it. Yeah, looking at the Instagram, it looks great. Okay. Well, I guess we'll we'll call it a wrap there. Our guest today was Paul Sutter. He is a astrophysicist and a science communicator and a theatrical performer. Uh, as <laughs> and so uh, he is. I want to thank you so much for taking time out to be with us in our podcast, Paul. It's been great talking to you, and I wish you nothing but the best of luck with the with the dance uh, idea. And don't forget, folks, astro.tours.com. Go check that out as well. And they got all kinds of the, the schedules just right there on the webpage. So definitely check it out. And on behalf of Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, I'm Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space. Thank you all so much for listening. And as always, keep looking up. Space Junk was produced by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California, in partnership with Deep Astronomy. Please send feedback and questions to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com.